0: Let's jump right in. Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse 1. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their asherim by green trees on the high hills. O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty, your high places for sin throughout your borders. And you will, even of yourself, let go of your inheritance that I gave you. And I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which will burn forever." The Lord says, O mountain of mine in the countryside. And He is talking about affectionately Jerusalem. O mountain of mine in the countryside. You hear almost a twinge of longing in the heart of the Lord. Psalm 48 verse 2 says, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Psalm 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. O mountain of mine in the countryside. I love the way that rings. That, there's got to be a song in that. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a mountain? Well, it rises 2,550 feet or so above sea level depending on what part of the city you're standing in. And it lays down across three ridges and over three valleys. Now you Bible students know this. The ridges are each called Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, and the Mount of Olives, or Olivet. And those are the three ridges. They're mountains, but they're, as you stand and look at them, even today in the way the city is built up, it's almost hard to see them unless you get in the right place. You can start to see how the ridges go in each direction. The valleys, the Cadrone Valley. The kadron which stands between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah. The kadron runs up between them. And then you've got the Tyropoian Valley or what Israelis today call the Central Valley. And that runs literally right up the middle of the old city of Jerusalem. It's between Mount Moriah and Mount Zion. And finally the Hanam Valley which curves around Mount Zion from the south and on up. To the west. Now, some of you have heard this before, but I want to reiterate it. If you haven't heard this, it's fascinating to me. These three valleys, three valleys, they all come together in the south, in the same way that my three fingers come together in the south of my hand, okay? Because south is always down, right? So, south and north, right? So, three valleys come together and they look something like holding up three. They form that shape together they form and they shape the Hebrew letter Sheen. Sheen is the letter. It is the letter that denotes for the Jewish people Shaddai. And if you see an aerial view of it, it is very clear the Kadron running up one way, the Tyropoian running up the middle, and then coming round the south and up to the west, the Hinnom Valley. And these three valleys, cutting through the ridges, look exactly like the Hebrew letter Sheen. 2nd Chronicles chapter 6 verse 6 says I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there I have chosen David to be over my people Israel Psalm 132:13 for the Lord has chosen Zion he has desired it for his habitation I don't fully understand that because God is spirit Jesus said and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth and yet he has tagged Jerusalem he has tagged this location of all the locations on the entire planet. He said, this is the mountain of mine. O oh, mountain of mine. But verse 3 contrasts the mountain of the Lord with the high places of idolatry. O oh, mountain of mine, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty, your high places for sin throughout your borders. Jerusalem rises gang above the Hinnom Valley there again to the south and to the west but what also used to rise out of the Hinnom Valley was the smoky fires of sacrifice to idols idolatry in the Hinnom Valley at the foot of God's beautiful mountain and it spilled over up the mountain and across the ridges and throughout Jerusalem even to get into the temple itself under King Manasseh, the idolatry was so bad, there were idols placed in the temple. An abhorrence to God. Absolutely depraved behavior. By the time Josiah came and cleaned it all out, and then Jeremiah comes on the scene, well, the temple was cleaned out, but there were still those fires down in the Hanan Valley. They would rise back up immediately after the death of Josiah. We've talked about these things. The people practiced depravity in the very shadow of the mountain that the Lord God says, O mountain of mine. And so no wonder he begins this passage in verse 1 saying, The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point. It is engraved upon the tablet of their heart. On the horns of their, or literally on the horns of your heart altars. Now the iron stylus and the diamond point those are easy to understand. They they portray indelible sin. Sin that is so bad it's literally carved into the flesh of the heart. But notice that he says your sin is also on the horns of your altars. Now what's that all about? Leviticus chapter 16 verse 17 The Lord gave through Moses the law of atonement, the law for Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And he said as follows, when he goes in, when the priest goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. This was the big day, right? One day a year. When the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and on that day, the sin of all Israel, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins that they knew they committed, sins they didn't. All of their sin for the year was dealt with in that day at the altar, at the altar of incense and in the altar outside. But listen to what he says, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. So what's supposed to be on the horns of the altars? The blood. The blood that brings forgiveness or at least covering in those days. A covering for sin. But now the Lord says your sin is there. Dripping off the horns of the altar. What are you saying, Lord? Atonement's not working. You guys have uncovered your covering. The blood of bulls and goats is no match for your atrocious rebellion, God says to Judah. And of course, if we're being honest with ourselves, it never was. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when He comes into the world, that is Jesus, when Jesus comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of Me to do your will, O God. And what was God's will? That the perfect man die. That His blood would not only atone for, but would completely erase the sins of people who came to Him in faith. So Jesus had a body prepared for Him. He came to die. His blood was applied where my sin should be. Where's that? On the altar of Calvary. God said, I want the blood on the altar. But the people's sin was too big for the blood of animals, and so God says, then I'm going to send My Son that His blood would be on the altar, a blood that is greater than any sin and washes all sin away. By the way, note this in verse 4. He says something interesting that you might miss if you're just reading through this. I did. And you will even of yourself let go of your inheritance that I gave you. Now, I, I saw that. What caught my eye was letting go of an inheritance. And as I studied this out, I realized there are some translations, perhaps you have one, that says you will lose your inheritance. And if your Bible says that, please take your pen and cross out lose because it is a mistranslation. God does not tell Judah you're going to lose your inheritance. He says you're going to let go of it. The Hebrew word is shamat. And shamat, literally... And I'm going to give you, by the way, there's so many really cool Hebrew words in tonight's study. Jot them down. Some that are just fun. Some that are they're fascinating. I noticed that today. It's like, wow, there's so many. Shamat means to release or to let drop as if the Lord's saying Judah you have your inheritance in your hand but instead you're raising your hands to idols and your your inheritance has dropped to the ground you've let go of it truly you even of yourself will let go of your inheritance so that's an accurate translation letting go not losing because you see God holds on to that inheritance as, as though he keeps it in trust holds it in trust until the people would come back to him in faith he's still holding it in trust the inheritance of Israel but going a little further I found something else that was interesting this word shamat it's the verb it's in the verb form of the Hebrew word and it's root form is the noun shabai which doesn't even sound like shamat except it starts with the, the shin or the shin the sh sound Shabbai means seventh. Seventh. As in the number seven. Seventh. Well, what does that have to do with releasing or letting something drop? Seventh. For 490 years, there was a law of release that was completely ignored by Israel. A law that called on the people to let something go. It was the law of Shabbat, Sabbath. Drop your work. Let it go. Release your hard work one day a week and come rest before me. Leviticus 25, verse 3. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the Shavii, the land shall have a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. talks about the same sabbatical year. Every seventh year was supposed to be a sabbatical. All farmers, and the Israelis were farmers. The Israelites. All of you, take the year off. Don't farm. He says, don't worry about it because you'll eat of the produce. I'll give you extra produce in the sixth year. So that in the seventh year, in fact, I'll give you so much that in the seventh year while you don't plant, you'll have plenty. And in the eighth year, which is actually the first year starting over, when you plant again and you're waiting for the crops to grow, you'll still have plenty. Take the seventh off, the Shabbai. Let it drop. Release your debts. Deuteronomy 15 verses 1 and 2 and Exodus 23 both talk about not only were they to take the year off from planting and sowing the, the fields, They were also to take the year off from debt. Wouldn't that be marvelous? I'm going to write to Visa. And I'm just going to suggest the seventh year. And I'm going to tell them, by the way, this is year six. (laughs) So if we can get right on that. No, think about that. If the credit card companies, if the creditors, if the mortgage companies, if the banks, if they all said, hey, every seventh year we start over. That was God's law for His people. And in 490 years, a marvelous, wonderful law was never recognized or followed once. Unbelievable. They never took the seventh year off. Why not? Always trying to get ahead. Sound like us? Well, I'd take Sunday as a day of rest, but I really have too much preparation for the week ahead. i got to get a jump on it. And so we're stressed out and freaked out and and worried out and everything has us just wrapped up in knots because we're not taking the day. We're not releasing our debts. We're not letting it drop. Sabbatical years, 70 of them were disregarded. 490 years, 70 sabbatical years, not paid attention to. And so while the people experience captivity in Babylon... While well, they experienced the true level of heinous idolatry in Babylon till they were sick of it, the land itself finally had its seventh for 70 years. Seventy years the ground would lie fallow. Seventy years it would not be planted or sowed. Seventy years it would have the rest that the people had robbed from it and from themselves. Seventy years of Sabbath rest. 2 Chronicles 36.21 tells us that it was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of Judah's desolation, the land kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. God was teaching His people a severe lesson in Babylon, and God was giving rest to His land to make up for those 70 Shabbaes that had been ignored completely the Lord's going to come back to Sabbath in just a minute he's going to explicitly address the Sabbath but first he calls out the heart problem of humanity we go back now to that iron stylus carved heart the sin that is so deep thus says the Lord verse 5 cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord Lance Armstrong is an atheist He is an avowed, self-proclaimed atheist. And all of his trust was in the flesh. All of his trust in the strength of man. Where there is no God, where there is no eternity, of course, of course you shoot up with steroids. Why wouldn't you? If this is it, if this life is your only go-around, of course you do that. Why? What? You know, it's amazing to me that the world pretends to have standards. They're not based on anything. The sin of trusting in flesh. Verse six: For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt, without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts who trusts in the Lord. And whose trust is the Lord. And this may sound familiar for those of you who recall Psalm 1. He will be like a tree planted by the water. That extends its root by a stream. And will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought. Nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result, or literally to the fruit of his deeds. As, as a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly, in the midst of his days, it will forsake him. And in the end... He will be a fool. And I hate to call out Lance Armstrong's name again. But in the midst of his days, everything catches up. All the lies, all the self-deception, all the focus on the flesh. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And recognizing and realizing that every time I focus on the flesh in my life, my flesh fails me. And if we focus on the flesh, it will fail us. So we focus on the Spirit. Now I'm going to come back and talk about verses 5-11 through on Sunday. I want to spend a little more time processing this. We've seen verse 9 quite a bit about the heart being more deceitful than all else. So we'll come back and think it through. Lord willing, if we're here, and the saints don't rise, but Jeremiah responds first recognizing the mountain of the Lord and its sanctuary, he says in verse 12, a glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, the temple. So he's reflecting now. The Lord says, O mountain of mine! And Jeremiah says, O place of our sanctuary, our sanctuary on high. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You, will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. His tune's changing. See, this is the same Jeremiah. On Sunday we heard him say, are you going to be to me like a deceptive stream? And when he repents and comes back and recognizes that no, God's not the deceptive stream, his own self-pity was. And so now Jeremiah is saying, you are the fountain of living water. It's those who forsake the fountain of living water who end up dry, who will be written down. He says in verse 14, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are my praise. And I love the way he writes that. I think that's a whole sermon right there. Heal me, and I'll be healed. How often do we say, Heal me, Lord. Boy, I hope I'm healed. (laughs) Save me, and I will be saved. And how many times do Christians say, Boy, I hope I'm saved. Not sure if I'm saved. If God saved you, you're saved. If you've received His salvation, you're saved. If He says He's going to heal you, trust Him to heal you. And then He says, and I love this, For you are my praise. Is the Lord your praise? I'm not asking, do you praise the Lord? I'm asking, is the Lord your praise? Is the Lord Jesus in your life, is He your highest honor? You know, is is Christ in you your hope of glory? It's interesting. Brian read that earlier. A day is coming when, as Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 60, verse 19, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. I never thought about it like that. God as my glory. My honor is Jesus in me. My praise is not anything I've done or who I am. My praise is the Lord. That's marvelous. Good word, Jeremiah. In verse 15, he goes on, he says, Look, they keep saying to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Okay, they're mocking. They're saying, Jeremiah, you keep telling us stuff's going to happen and nothing's happening. Mockers have come with their mocking, saying, When's this going to happen? Everything's just continuing on as it always has where's the word of the Lord let it come now they say scorning him mocking him verse 16 but as for me I have not hurried away from being a shepherd after you nor have I longed for the woeful day you yourself know he's speaking to the Lord that the utterance of my lips was in your presence do not be a terror to me you are my refuge in the day of disaster and so Jeremiah says, Let those who persecute me be put to shame. But as for me, let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring on them a day of disaster and crush them with twofold destruction. And again, I say, Right on, Jeremiah. <laughs> you ever pray prayers like that? David did. Lord, crush the teeth of my enemies. I always liked that one. Crush their teeth. Bring it on their own head, Lord. Take them down, Father. And it sounds vengeful, and yet I believe that Jeremiah's attitude is spot on. And the way he's praying is a right way to pray. <laughs> Notice in verse 16 he says, I have not longed for the woeful day. That is the day of destruction of Jerusalem. I have not longed for that. But in verse 18. He says, bring on them the day of disaster. Is this a contradiction? I don't want the woeful day. Bring the woeful day. No, it's not a contradiction. The woeful day, the day of disaster, are the coming fall of Jerusalem, which Jeremiah had been prophesying about. And he doesn't want the woeful day to come on his people. But for the mockers, the scoffers, the scornful, well, that's another thing. And Jeremiah, and you may disagree with me, but Jeremiah, I believe, rightly calls out those who would reject, who would rebel against, who would scoff against the Lord, who are not going to repent, but will only fight back against the Lord. Bring the disaster on them, Lord. What's he praying? Fulfill your word. Do as you said you would do. I want to think about for a moment our attitude regarding the woeful day to come. Because there is a day coming worse than the fall of Jerusalem in 586. Worse than the fall of Jerusalem in 70. And I'll tell you something later that will shake you as to how bad it was. There is a day of disaster, a woeful day worse than the Nazi Holocaust. A day that is coming. And some people criticize pre-tribulation rapture believers. I are one. As those who look forward to the tribulation with kind of a sick, twisted, self righteous mentality, you know, <laughs> tribulation's coming and it's going to get the world, you know, we'll be saved. And there are those who that really bothers. May it never be that we look forward to the tribulation, knowing what it means. Now, I do look forward to the rapture with great expectation. I look forward to the rapture of the church. It brings me incredible comfort to know a day is coming when I'm going to be out of here. I'm just going to go. And all the troubles and all the worries and all the stressors and all the wrath that is to come is not for me. Well, how do you know that? Because He has not destined me for wrath but for salvation in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 And so I look forward to the rapture. However, I look to the coming tribulation as something that prods my evangelistic boots to get moving. I think about the coming wrath that is going to be poured out on the world, and I think I have got to tell more people about Jesus. There is no time to waste. We've got to hit the ground running. We've got to get the message out. We don't have all the time in the world. And that's what the tribulation does to my heart. The rapture brings me great joy. The tribulation brings me great tension to be busy with the message of the Gospel. However, what do you do with the mockers? What do you do with the Bill Mars of the world, the Ted Turners? I went through, I was going to give you a whole list, it it just was too depressing. But I went through and I found famous atheists in the world today among celebrities and stars and those who claim the attention of our culture and our people. And it was just saddening to see those who are outspoken atheists, those who come right up and and mock Jesus and mock the church and mock all things holy. What do you do with them? Let me give you two suggestions. Suggestion number one, don't get drawn into diversionary battles. Don't get drawn into fruitless arguments don't get pulled out into useless controversy. Don't go there. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And I'm not trying to be rude and say these people are dogs and swine. Hey, they're lost. But when a heart is so hard and so seared, that it would mock God... That it has chosen, or the person has chosen, to set themselves against, to be opposed to, all things Jesus. Don't get caught up in those those battles. The arguments of naysayers are about distraction. Satan uses those naysayers to distract believers from our due course, which is to bring the gospel to ears that will hear. And sometimes, and perhaps you've done it, I know I have in my life, I get so wrapped up in debating because I want to win. And you know we've said before, we're not here to win debates, we're here to win souls. Mm -hmm. Right? Don't get lured into diversionary battles, skirmishes that just divert you from the cause of the gospel. Okay, so don't get drawn into those battles, but what else do we do? What do we do about the mockers and the scoffers? Here's the second suggestion. Let them have their day. Just let them mock. Let them scoff all they want. Don't argue the point. Don't fight them. I'm not saying don't stand up for your faith. I'm saying, as Paul said in Romans twelve, nineteen, never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And the day is coming, as with the scoffers in Judah that Jeremiah referred to, when there will be a double portion of destruction. Note that. He says, Bring on them a day of disaster and crush them with twofold destruction, or double destruction. Another day of double destruction is coming, speaking of the fall of Babylon, the capital city of world rebellion in that tribulation. Revelation 18 verse 16 says, Pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. Vengeance. As Christians, we go, I don't want to mess with the vengeance thing. Great. Give it to the Lord. And that's what Jeremiah is doing. Bring down your word, Lord. Bring your judgment on those who would mock you, who would scorn you. Bring the judgment that you said would come. Don't fight the mocker. Preach the Gospel. All right. Verse 19. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the public gate. Now note this. We've seen this before. God tells Jeremiah, I want you to go somewhere and preach a message. And where He says that, pay attention to where it is because it always has to do with the message itself. Stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out. "...as well in all the gates of Jerusalem." So this is a message for everyone coming and going from the capital city of Judah. "...and say to them, listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah, and all Judah and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who come in through these gates. Thus says the Lord, "...take heed for yourselves, and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day, or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem." You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your forefathers. Yet, verse 23, they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. This section uh, in chapter 17, some think that perhaps Jeremiah or Baruch Who is Jeremiah's scribe? We'll see this later in the book. Perhaps placed it here in verse 17 in proximity to what he's talking about regarding the Sabbath earlier. He places it here, even though it perhaps timing wise was given earlier. It truly reads because God is saying, keep the Sabbath. It's almost like a message you would expect the Lord to bring to Josiah's time, you know, when there was still an opportunity for the people. And so he says, keep the Sabbath be about the Sabbath don't ignore the Sabbath and now he's not talking about the sabbatical year he's talking about that one day in seven the day of rest and I got to thinking in the context of everything that we're going to be looking at and already have seen tonight why was Shabbat so important what's the deal with the Sabbath why did God proclaim this as such a necessary thing and it is much bigger than the fact that our bodies start to conk out after six days It's bigger than the fact that God knows if He doesn't tell us to rest, we won't. If He doesn't make the sun go down and make it get dark, we'll stay up all night, you know. It's more than that. In the late 1800s, a Russian-born Zionist by the name of Ahad Ha'am coined a very famous phrase you've probably heard. It's encouraged Jews the world over. He said, more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. The Sabbath has kept the Jews, and he's right. And there's a key to the Sabbath, and I've paused to point this out. There's a key to resting in the Lord, which God's people clearly misunderstood. They didn't get it. Had they gotten it, it would have saved them a world of hurt. And there's a key for us in resting in the Lord that if we miss it, like Judah, we're just gonna charge into captivity. We're just gonna head into a world of hurt. We need to understand the Sabbath did a couple of things. It did many things, I'm going to point out too. It testified to God as their source. The Sabbath testified to God as their source. As we already saw, the sabbatical year was a way of proving to the people of Israel that if they truly would rest every seventh year, God would provide. They would have food throughout that year and throughout the next And then they could plant and be ready the year after that to start receiving the work of their hands and their labor. But it would be proof to the people, if you pause and take that year off, and I bring my provision, you'll turn around and say, praise the Lord, he did it. He said he would, and he did. God set up in the sabbatical year a way for him to tangibly show his people that he's the one providing, not their hard labor. Same with the Sabbath day itself. Don't spend the day working, hauling in your heavy loads, taking out your heavy loads. Take the day off. I promise you, you'll prosper. I promise you, you will be better for it. The Sabbath testified to God as their source. Look at verse 24. He says, it will come about, if you listen attentively to me, declares the Lord, to bring no load in through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but to keep the Sabbath day holy by doing no work on it. Then there will come in through the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, peace. Keep the Sabbath, and there will be peace. The kings, the princes of Judah, they'll ride in and out. They're not. Why will they ride in and out of the city? Because they're not off fighting wars. They're home, and they're here. And the princes will have Jerusalem just as their home. There will be peace. He also says, and this city will be inhabited forever. Permanence. God as their source will provide peace and permanence if they would just keep the Sabbath day. And then He goes on and says, and they will come in from the cities of Judah and from the environs of Jerusalem from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the hill country and from the Negev And they will bring their burnt offerings and sacrifices and grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of thanksgiving to the house of the Lord. Came the thank offering, remember, was voluntary. They're going to bring all this stuff in for sacrifices and offerings. Why? Because in addition to having peace and having permanence, there will be prosperity. I'm going to so bless you that all you're going to be able to do is turn around and thank me. And you're going to want to thank me, so you're going to be bringing all your thank offerings into the city. Peace permanence, prosperity if they would recognize the Sabbath and know that all things come by the hand of God. God is the source. but ultimately the law of Sabbath was greater still in its impact on the people. For the Sabbath not only testified that God is their source but it testified that God is there was their sovereign their sovereign. Think about the Sabbath. One day in seven where God says, come and rest with me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Let the day be about me. What are you getting at, Rick? Consider the order of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself nor worship any idols or graven images. What were the people of Judah doing at this point? They had other gods before him and they were worshiping idols, right? Commandment number one and number two violated. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And they did it all the time. How? By saying, well, as the Lord lives, we'll do such and such. It was a saying in Judah Very similar, and we've seen it a couple times already in Jeremiah. As the Lord lives, we'll do this. The same thing as people in America saying, God bless you, but they don't believe in God. We think taking the Lord's name in vain is when someone curses using God's name in it. We take the name of the Lord in vain whenever we say God bless you and we have no intent of God on our minds or on our hearts. It's vanity. It's empty. So they're doing all three. And then commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Why? What does the Sabbath day do? It keeps the name of the Lord primary. It keeps the idols away. It keeps the Lord as God before them. It it does what is required of them in the first three commandments. If you'll keep the Sabbath day, if you'll spend a day in seven just on me. Resting in me, thinking about me, it's going to be really hard to violate the other three. But if you ignore the Sabbath, if you ignore your rest, if you ignore that I'm your source and I'm your sovereign, what's going to happen? You're going to take the name of the Lord in vain. That's usually where it starts. You're going to kind of empty out your faith. And then you're going to start placing other gods before me. Next thing you know, you're going to be involved in idol worship. Had the people kept the Sabbath and had they kept the sabbatical year every 7th and even the Jubilee every 50th the rest would have taken care of itself. The rest would have taken care of itself. Do you see the simple principle here? Of just resting in the Lord. If we will commit ourselves to giving a day in seven and to rest before the Lord. And I'm not talking about taking Sabbath as a religious exercise. See, that would happen with the Pharisees. Under the Pharisaical leadership in Jesus' day, the Sabbath became very difficult work. Trying to keep the Sabbath. There were so many laws and requirements. I'm talking about times that we literally devote to simply resting in the Lord, like what you're doing right now. What you do when you wander in the barn every Wednesday night. You are resting. You have said, this evening I will rest before the Lord. I'm going to rest in worship. I'm going to rest in prayer. I'm going to rest in fellowship with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to rest in the Word of God. You are in Shabbat right now. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, that is Israel. There's still a Sabbath they haven't claimed yet. For the one who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, the early church caught on to this very quickly and they shifted the Shabbat, Saturday day of rest, they shifted to Sunday. Oh, I, I know there are theologians and there are those who reject that and there are Sabbath-only people and you know, Seventh-day Adventist says it has to be Saturday and you know, that, that gets real religious. The early church chose Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. They would call it the Lord's day. They met together, we know, on the first day of the week. We know Acts 2.42 tells us they broke bread, they prayed, they fellowshiped, and they listened to teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I point that out because I fully believe, and I know I'm old school on this, but I believe as we rest before the Lord in fellowship, in teaching, in prayer, and especially in breaking bread at the table of the Lord together, every week we rest. We rest. Faithfulness in resting before the Lord is about keeping God primary. It changes my heart. It reminds me, every time we gather, I am reminded, He is my source. He is my sovereign. We rest, and as we do so, when we break bread together, every week, what are we doing? We remember Jesus who rested from His work. Having completed all the work, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. The principle is so vital if we are to avoid the idolatry of the world, if we are going to maintain the value of God's name if we're going to have no other gods before him we need to rest in him now that brings us to verse 20 what 27 can i stop at 26 He says, but if you do not listen to Me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. What are you saying? Here's the principle. If you don't rest in the Lord, you're going to burn out. You're going to get fried. Rest in the Lord. Now we come to chapter 18. Chapter 18 verse 1 tells us the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying... Arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will announce my words to you. Okay, location, go to the potter's house. So, I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter so he remade it into another vessel and it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not... O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, to destroy. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I have promised to bless it. So now, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back, each of you, from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. And all this at the potter's house. The potter's house. The potter's house is one of the most recognizable pictures in Jeremiah. This chapter, a very recognizable story from Jeremiah. And the potter is a very recognizable portrait in all of Scripture. Job was the first one Recognize it, Job chapter 10, verse 9. He said, Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? I'm clay in your hands, Job says. Elihu in the book of Job, chapter 33, verse 6, says, Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Isaiah comes along in chapter 29, verse 16, and says, You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed would say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. The Lord says in Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. Isaiah 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are our potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Skip ahead to the New Testament, and Paul says in Romans 9.20, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And then ultimately in Revelation chapter two, verse 26, Jesus quotes from Psalm two, verse nine, saying, He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And He is sovereign. Rick, do you believe in the sovereignty of God or do you believe in the free will of man? Yes. God is sovereign. He is the potter. I am the clay. He can do whatever He wants. He has all authority, all right, all power to do whatever He wants, to work and to shape the clay into a vessel of His choosing. And by the way, contentment in our life comes from recognizing that He is the potter and I'm the clay. And I will not be like less. And I'm not gonna function like Shelly. I'm not gonna react or respond like Jimmy. I'm different. I'm this vessel. And the potter has molded me this way. And I am to be content in that. Because he's the potter. He made up the decision, not me. Be content in who you are that God formed you the way he did. But listen, though God is sovereign, the clay has a choice. And it's even obvious in chapter 18 that the clay has a choice. If the clay turns from evil, if the thing formed by the potter turns from evil, compassion will come. God will relent from judgment. If the clay continues in evil, calamity will come. God will not relent, but He will judge. And so we have this marvelous dynamic, and it runs throughout Scripture God is absolutely sovereign, but He gives, remarkably, He gives the clay the choice. The choice to respond to His sovereignty or not. To accept or reject it. It was true for the kingdom of Judah in Jeremiah's day. It is true for the nations of the world today. If we turn to the Lord, He will relent. And there will be compassion and grace. If we turn from the Lord, be assured judgment is coming. Verse 12. But they will say, it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. And it reminds me that just because God offers a choice doesn't mean the choice will be accepted. I'm sure you've probably talked to people who reject the choice that God offers. They say things like, What kind of choice is that? God says, believe in Me and be saved, or believe not and be condemned. What kind of a choice is that? Hey, it's a choice. It is a choice. He didn't even have to give you that. But people say, no, 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 I can't accept that. I can't accept that there's only one way to the Father. There's a way! I can't accept that Jesus died for me and if I don't believe in Him... But you can! That's the beauty of it. You don't have to, but you can. You can choose Him and be saved. Jeremiah 17.5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And that's the beauty of being the clay. Though we are molded by the Father, we can either turn to the Lord or away from the Lord. It is completely our choice. And note this, and it's hard words, but when a person is cursed... It is by their own choice. It truly is. Verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, whoever heard the like of this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Appalling. The word is sha <laughs> Sha'arurah means shocking, defiling, unclean. It parallels; it kind of it's a word picture here, where he says the virgin of Israel has done this shocking thing. God's saying, my virgin daughter has made herself unclean, and it's that whole implication of them chasing after the, the idols and, the, and prostituting themselves with idolatry. The virgin of Israel has done this <coughs> appalling thing. She shocked her betrothed. And then the Lord gives an interesting example. He says, does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? Or is the cold water flowing from a foreign land ever snatched away? What's he saying here? He's saying there is a dependability seasonally, in season and out of season. There is a dependability of the snow and the fresh water that flows out of Lebanon. Lebanon. Lebanon has perpetual snow cover. Unlike even northern Israel, which receives the water, the headwaters of the Jordan flow out in one source, out of Lebanon. But those headwaters come from the snow that is constant in Lebanon. There's always snow in Lebanon. Just like there's always snow on Mount Hermon in Israel in the north. And Lebanon itself means white mountain. That's what Lebanon Means white mountain, indicating the snow that is perpetual, that is always there. And what the Lord's saying is listen, if nature doesn't change its course, if created nature is consistent and you can count on it to do these things, how in the world have my own people changed course? Not even nature's done that. My people have forgotten me, verse 15. They burn incense to worthless gods. And they have stumbled from their ways from the ancient paths to walk in bypaths, not on a highway. To make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing, sarakah, in the Hebrew, sarakah. Perpetual hissing, it, it means amazed whistling. It's like someone sings something and just going, whew, whew. You know, it's that kind of a sound he's pointing out. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. But note why. It's there in verse 15. From the ancient paths. They have stumbled from the ancient paths. Remember Jeremiah referencing this earlier? Chapter 6, verse 16. The Lord says, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. (laughs) Brian and I uh, yesterday were talking about how interesting it is in in our world how people come up with new stuff all the time. I'm into this new thing. I'm doing this thing. This is brand new. This is new, this is great, this is the newest, latest, greatest. And if you walk this earth very long, you know the newest, latest, greatest just gets old really fast. And the Lord says, walk the ancient paths. Now you know Brian is planning on planting a church. We're gonna send him. And I'm so excited about that. And I do remind you all, keep praying about that because God may be calling you to go with him. And we want to send a team. Not just Brian and Irene. <laughs> Good luck, have fun. You know, no, we want to be a part of this but Brian said something and I just love the way he said this he goes you know Rick I'm not doing a new thing I'm doing a very old thing I'm just walking the same path that our forefathers have been walking for 2,000 years and he reminded me I thought you know when we started the bridge it was not a new thing we were just walking the same path that those who have Follow Jesus have walked before us. The ancient paths. The ancient paths which recognizes the Word of God. The ancient path which is blazed by the Spirit of God. Walk the ancient path. For all our so-called progress in the world, we end up nowhere if we forsake the ancient path. And don't forget, by the way, who walked the ancient path before us. Daniel 7 verse 9 says, I kept looking, Daniel speaking, until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Daniel 7 reflects very similarly, interestingly, the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. Jesus the Ancient of Days. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity, the ancient paths. John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Walk the ancient paths. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your life in Jesus may be brand new. You might be recently born again. Born anew. But Jesus is not new. Jesus is as ancient as it comes. Jesus is eternity. And He has brought and walked the ancient path. Church, we need to not be so quick and eager to progress. We need to continue to walk the ancient path of Jesus, the Word of God, and Jeremiah recognizes it's not always easy. He's going to take, we're going to start to see now, he's going to take a whooping. When we get to chapter 20 next week, it starts off with Jeremiah taking a whooping for the message that he brings that we're looking at tonight. It's not always easy, but it never was. Verse 18, Then they said, okay, this is the scoffers, the mockers, the scorners, they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. We have our priests. We have our wise men. We have our prophets. And they're not saying what Jeremiah is saying. They're not saying calamity. They're saying peace, peace. But you all know there is no peace. Come, let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. It's a shutout. A shut out Jeremiah. So Jeremiah responds to this revelation of what his opponents are doing. Do give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. Indeed, he's going to be thrown into a pit before the end of the book. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away your wrath from them. I've been praying for them, Lord. Therefore, give their children over to famine and deliver them up to the power of the sword, and let their wives become childless and widowed, and let their men also be smitten to death, their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses when You suddenly bring raiders upon them, for they have dug a pit to capture Me and hidden snares for My feet. Yet You, O Lord... Know all their deadly designs against me. Now, this is great. I said Sunday, Jeremiah will never complain again like he did in chapter 15. He's going to get close a couple times. but It'll never get that bad. Here, he's starting to go down the road of self-pity. He's starting to go down the road of paranoia until he gets to verse 23. Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Ever have those aha moments? You go, God knew this was coming. You know? I was blown away, but the Lord knew it was coming, so He must have a way to get me through this. And that's where Jeremiah is. You already know. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight, but may they be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. And once again, we hear the pathos of Jeremiah's prophetic plight. He says, I pleaded while they plotted. I interceded while they incited. It's not fair, Lord. But at least Jeremiah is praying in the right direction. At least he's taking it to the Lord and he's saying, Lord, deal with them and remember, remember that God will. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Chapter 19, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests and then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. The word here is a great Hebrew word worth remembering. The word for earthenware jar is bakbuk. Bakbuk. It's, it's onomatopoetic. poetic it's it's a jar, literally a jar that is large in the bottom but then comes up to a narrower place at the top. So when you pour it out, what does it sound like? Bakbuk, bakbuk, bak-buk. We have a gurgle pot at home. It's a fish. It looks like a big fish. Some of you know what the gurgle pots I'm talking about? And I love it. When you pour the water out of it, it goes, it gurgles. So we have the word gurgle. The Hebrews have vakbuk. I love it. So go buy a bakbuk. And go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Verse 3. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am about to bring a calamity upon this place. At which the ears of everyone that hears it will tingle. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. And have burned sacrifices in it to other gods. And neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Keep that thought in mind. they filled this place with the blood of the innocent. And have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it even enter my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Tophet or the valley of Ben-Hanam, but rather the valley of slaughter. I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hand of those who seek their life, and I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. I will also make this city a desolation and an object of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. And then, he says, you are to break the jar. He's holding up the back book and he brings this very serious word of the Lord shatters the earthenware jar on the ground of the Hanam Valley. The prophetic precision of this is astounding. And it's not just Jeremiah's. Of what's going to happen in the Valley of Hinnom, of what's going to happen in the siege against Jerusalem. It's absolutely incredible. 500 years earlier, Moses declared cannibalism would come to Jerusalem during the siege. He talks about it in Leviticus 26, 29, and again in Deuteronomy 28, verse 53. He says, Your sons will, you will eat your sons and you will eat your daughters in the siege that is against you. As he's laying out the seriousness of a cursed life for those who choose to go against him. Jeremiah becomes an eyewitness of exactly that in 586 B.C. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 20, he says, See, O Lord, and look. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring? The little ones who were born healthy? Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. Valley of slaughter. Lamentations 4 verse 10. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. And it happened in 586 B.C. And it happened again in 70 A.D. Josephus gives a sickening account of a wealthy woman, Mary, daughter of Eleazar of Bathazor. And this wealthy woman would hoard her food and and the soldiers who were trying to fight knew where the hoards of her food were and they would come in and steal from her and she got angry and yelled at them. And finally one day, she seemed very peaceful and very calm and invited the soldiers, and you can read about this in Eusebius, Eusebius' history of the church, he quotes from Josephus, page 116. She takes them in, she uncovers the half-eaten body of her baby. And she says, This is my own son. The deed is mine. Eat, for I too have eaten. Be not more merciful than a woman, no more compassionate than a mother. But if you are too pious and shrink from my sacrifice, let the rest remain for me. At these words, the men, soldiers, who had seen all kinds of horror, terribly shaken, they filed out of the room quietly, And Josephus said, no one thought of depriving her of her latest store. God's mountain in the countryside is turned to a valley of slaughter. It would be as hellish as Gehenna. Gehenna. Ben-Hinnom. Jesus called it Gehenna. Hinnom means lamentation. The Hinnom Valley is the valley of lamentation. Verse 10, continuing on. Then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, just so I will break this people and this city. Even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired, and they will bury in Tophet because there is no other place for burial. This is how I will treat this place and its inhabitants, declares the Lord, so as to make this city like Tophet. The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place in Tophet, because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host and poured out drink offerings to other gods. And then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring on this city and all its towns the entire calamity that I have declared against it, because they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my words. Tophet actually has two meanings behind it. Tophet, you've probably heard before, means drumming, the sound of drumming. Because in the Valley of Tophet, it was the drum beats that would drown out the infant cries that were sacrificed on the idol to Molech. Drumming in Tophet. But it also means, they believe, an ancient variation that it comes from the word for cook stove or oven. A place of burning. Jerusalem itself would blaze the whole city with the same kind of fire that blazed up out of Tophet when all the sacrifices were taking place, because of the heinous idolatry that went on. Chapter 19 is a curse against the Valley of Hanom, the Valley of Lamentation, a curse against that region, that area, because of all the horrific things that took place there. And of course, Jesus refers to the burning of that valley. In Jewish memory, he draws it out to portray another burning. And for those who try to soften the message of hell, Let's say it very clearly, it wasn't just because it was a smoldering garbage dump that Jesus drew its attention. It was because of the horror that took place in the burnings in Tophet. Jesus said, hell will be like that. He talked about it numerous times. 22 times in the New Testament he is quoted in referring to the Gehenna, the Gehenom of fire or hell. Matthew 10.28, one example, do not fear those who kill the body but are able, unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell. And with one exception, James three verse six every New Testament reference to Gehenna as a symbol of hell itself is spoken by Jesus. If He wanted people to go to hell, He would not have talked about it so much. The valley is still called Hanom today, Valley of Lamentation. It's not called the Valley of Slaughter, which is interesting to me, because the Lord says back in verse six, it will be called the Valley of Slaughter. Joel 3, verse 12, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, their wickedness is great. Listen, the valley of Hinnom still has a future. Still has a purpose. Will still be called the valley of slaughter. We began tonight, and I mentioned three valleys in Jerusalem, right? The Kedron, the Tyropoian, and the Hinnom. But all three valleys start up. They start up in the north in what's called the Jezreel. The Jezreel valley flows all the way down, the valley of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, Armageddon. And that valley flows all the way down, and it flows into and through Jerusalem, through the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley then is joined by the Tyropoian and the Hinnom Valley, which curves around to the south. And then there's, there's a lookout from the city of David in Jerusalem. You can look south, and you can see that valley heading on out to the south. And it is all one and the same valley, one long valley from north to south... Anyone know what the distance of that valley is off the top of your heads? It is 200 miles. What's the significance? Revelation 14:20 the winepress is trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Armageddon. The valley of Kenam, the valley of slaughter. The slaughter is for coming days just as it was for Judah in 586, and it was again in 8070, so it will be in that time of tribulation. The valley of slaughter. Now I need to tell you one last thing tonight about the valley of Tophet, and it comes back to this issue of the blood of the innocent. The place, we're told back in verse 2, the place where Jeremiah was to come out with the bakbuk, and break it, where is the place? The potsherd gate. The potsherd gate, today in Israel, is the dung gate. Although the potsherd gate was a little bit further south in those days. The potsherd gate was called that because people carry broken pottery and refuge out that gate and dumped it on the ground. Because what do you do when pottery breaks? Well, you can't fix it. So when the pot breaks, you take it out the potsherd gate and you chuck it out into the refuse dump in the valley of Hinnom. The valley of Hinnom, it's where Jeremiah, again, broke the pottery. What are you getting at? Listen. It had another name. The potter's field. The potter's field. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned... He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and he hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver. They said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood, blood money. This is blood money for the betrayal of this guy who, who now we have hung up on the cross. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For that reason, the, that field, for this reason, has been called the field of blood. Akeldama in the Greek. To this day. And then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Quote, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set, by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. That which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. There's a problem. Verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 27 are not quoting from Jeremiah, they're quoting from Zechariah. Did Matthew get it wrong? No. Jeremiah's book headed up the scroll of the prophets. Zechariah's book was in the scroll of the prophets. And the rabbis always referred to the lead book in the scroll. But, there's something more. I do believe the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled, was fulfilled in the potter's field. How is Jeremiah's prophecy fulfilled in all this? That field became the field of of blood. The blood money of Jesus, the innocent, bought that field. There are fragmented lives. There are broken people in this world. There are shattered shards of shame. But the pure and precious blood of Jesus purchased us. He purchased us out of our worthlessness. We're like broken pots who are Irreparable. And Jesus purchased us out of that with His own blood the precious from the worthless. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You have been bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body.